0: Hello everybody, Uh, welcome, Uh, my name is is Gareth Jones, Uh, I am Professor of Urban Geography and Director of the Latin America and Caribbean Centre at the London School of Economics and Political Science. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you uh, to the LSE for this online event which forms part of the uh, LSE Festival Shaping the Post-COVID World, uh, which is a a week of uh, virtual Uh, events uh, open to all uh, until Saturday and which discusses and explores the direction the world could and should take uh, after the COVID crisis and in particular how social science uh, can inform and shape uh, that world. Uh, For more information about the festival please visit the festival hub uh, to access details of other uh, events via Zoom as well as a series uh, of pre-recorded uh, uh, talks with LSE uh, faculty. Uh, for more information about the LSE uh, Latin America Centre, um, then please also uh, visit our, our website uh, and perhaps in particular our COVID-19 uh, portal. I'm very pleased to chair this panel uh, of distinguished speakers uh, to address the theme of uh, breaking the inequality mould uh, in uh, Latin America. Uh, the region has long been identified as the most unequal region in the world uh, and whether that is measured as a distribution of income or of wealth and whether we attend to uh, gender, race, ethnicity and arguably cultural and political power. Um, As we may hear uh, from the panelists, um, some governments in the region um, have or did successfully attend to income inequality In the early 2000s, and despite the financial crisis of 2007 8 and the slow growth, uh, did uh, record some significant uh, improvements, even while other parts of the world uh, underwent uh, the so called global inequality crisis. Um, Even before COVID 19, um, however, data seem to show that most of the region has become more unequal, uh, and we have a sense and we may well explore uh, in the next hour or so um, how the pandemic uh, has both identified inequalities, uh, deepened them, uh, increased the motivation to attend to them, but perhaps also uh, limited or recalibrated the public policy tools uh, available uh, uh, to governments and other actors. Um, If you wish to follow um, the debate, um, then and you're a Twitter user, then please follow us on uh, hashtag LSE Festival. Uh, this event is also being recorded uh, and should be available as a podcast, uh, technology permitting, uh, in uh, a couple of days. Um, I would like now to introduce the speakers in the order in which they uh, will present. Um, firstly, uh, Francisco uh, Ferreira, um, who is a Sen. Uh, professor of Inequality Studies and Director of the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE. Uh, Francisco Chico uh, has had a long career at the World Bank before coming to the school, and as an economist, has worked on the measurements, causes, and consequences of inequality and poverty uh, in the global south, but with particular attention to Latin America. Um, Laura Cavallo is Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Sao Paulo, um, has a PhD in Economics from the New School uh, of Social Research in uh, New York. Her research focuses mostly on topics of macroeconomics and development economics and in particular on the relationship between economic growth and income uh, distribution. Uh, She may also be known to many of you uh, through her newspaper column uh, in Brazil's principal newspaper, Foro de Sao Paulo, Uh, which she wrote between 2015 and 2019, and or uh, through her best-selling book uh, Valsa Barcellera, which was published in 2018. Dr. Amir Lebdui is Canning House Research Fellow at the LSE. Um, His research is focused on political economy uh, of resource-based developments, export diversification strategies, uh, green industrial policy, Uh, and uh, in the context of renewable energy uh, development and climate change. And Dr. Elise Corosa is a postdoctoral researcher uh, on social inequalities at the Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City. Her main research interests include elites and privilege, discrimination and racism, uh, as well as perceptions of inequality. She's acted as a consultant to among other organisations, Oxfam, and the uh, UN Commission for Latin America at uh, CEPAL. Um, we're also joined today by our uh, uh, moderator, uh, Christina Cortez, who is Chief Executive Officer uh, of Canning House, uh, which is uh, a UK-based uh, think tank. Uh, Christina has worked in governments, uh, the banking and the energy sector, uh, and uh, enrolls in London. Houston, Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina, and Brazil. Um, but perhaps uh, most relevant of all, she's a graduate of the LSE uh, and at an Oxford in politics uh, and economics. Uh, Christina, I over to you uh, to uh, handle the, the panel uh, and uh, introduce Canning House.
1: Gareth, thank you very much. And it's an absolute pleasure to, to be moderating this event today. First of all, for those of, us, uh, those of you who don't know Canning House, just a little bit of introduction. Uh, we are a not-for-profit whose unique role uh, is to promote understanding and relationships between the UK and Latin America. Uh, we're a forum for contact, for thought leadership, and a rather pragmatic debate um, on Latin American political, economic, and social trends and issues, and also business risks and opportunities. So we invest in research, we publish newsletters and reports, And we convene events to raise awareness and understanding to aid policy making in government and also to encourage networking. We're independent and we're neutral, but we're not afraid of controversy. We partner with ministers and government officials, members of parliament, embassies, think tanks and universities from both sides uh, of the Atlantic. And we also publish the Canning House LATAM outlook, which is a five year look ahead at political, economic, social, health, environmental and security developments uh, in the region. And indeed, our next edition is due for publication uh, within a couple of weeks and can be found via our website. We also partner with the LSE Latin American Caribbean Center on the Canning House Research Forum, which Gareth already mentioned, which is a five-year research program whose first research fellow I am delighted to see on the panel today. And we also please note offer free individual membership of canning house to students which is worth noting i'm now going to turn to the panel just um, to manage your expectations as our audience each panelist will speak for about five minutes and at the end of their remarks we will go to questions and answers but you don't have to wait till the end to submit questions in fact i would rather that you didn't wait till the end as that could then give rise to an awkward pause So to submit your questions, just use the Q&A feature at the bottom of the screen and questions will then come through to us. And I will pose to the speakers as many as possible uh, during the time that we have. It would be helpful if you could let us have your name when you put in your question and your affiliation. Um, obviously, we'd be particularly keen to hear from LSE students, alumni, such as myself, um, and incoming students. So please also note that if you would be so kind. So without further delay, I'm going to hand over to Francisco to start the presentations. Francisco, please.
2: Thanks, uh, thanks very much, Cristina and Gareth. Can, uh, can you hear me okay? I don't know if you can see the presentation. You can see the presentation. Excellent. Very good. Um, all right. Um so um as as Christina says we have each of us has 10 minutes and uh, sorry 5 minutes and so I'm going to be very short. Uh my my um A role in the division of labor that we had was to sort of set the scene a little bit and and talk about uh, some basic facts of economic inequality in Latin America and how they interact with the pandemic with with, uh, COVID 19 over the last year. So let me start by sharing what, um, you know, a figure that shows what Garrett has already mentioned, uh, which is just uh, the extent to which Latin American inequality is, you know, the highest in the world. So these are uh, Gini indices, uh, measures of inequality of income based on household surveys for all regions of the world. You've got the industrialized countries here. You've got Europe and Central Asia, South Asia, uh, Middle East and North Africa, East Asia and the Pacific, Africa and Latin America. And you can see Latin America at the top here. You can also see the decline between 2000 and 2015 that Garrett also mentioned. And indeed, if we had extended this forward, um, it, would look, it, it would not be a decline. Um, it, you know, it would be flatter or increasing for some countries There's some sort of uncertainty over this period as well. I should also note that this is based on household surveys. And if you correct for the problems the household surveys have with uh, underreporting of top incomes and so on, Uh, then this decline looks uh, smaller. There's still a decline. By most measures, I'm willing to countenance, but it's smaller. I should also say that Africa um, is actually closer to Latin America than this suggests because household surveys in Africa are based on consumption rather than income. So if they were measured in the same way, they would be closer. But nonetheless, Latin America is a hugely unequal place and that inequality isn't just in incomes, but as Gareth mentioned as well, it, it uh, spans the spectrum across uh, education, across political power, wealth, and therefore um, opportunities, right? And so I show here two graphs, um, in this, which are both versions of what uh, became known recently as the Great Gatsby Curve that Miles Korak introduced and the economist Alan Kruger often used to talk about. They plot um, income inequality, like the one I showed you before, against a measure of mobility, an inverse measure of mobility. This actually should say intergenerational earnings elasticity, which is the relationship between the income of parents and their children. More specifically, in this case, almost always fathers and sons. And so what you see, this positive slope that became famous as the Great Gatsby Curve, suggests that across the world, countries which are more unequal also tend to have lower mobility, higher immobility, higher persistence, and what I want to draw your attention to here is where Latin America is. With the exception of South Africa, Latin America is at the extreme end of both the inequality uh, dimension and even of South Africa in terms of immobility, in terms of the persistence of this, of, of this inequality, the degree to which parental background and family background matter uh, for, uh, uh, for people. And you can see this in another way, which is a measure that we have that I've worked on with some co-authors. Of inequality of opportunity, where where we basically replace uh, just parental income with a set of other indicators of of circumstances that people can't be held responsible for, things like their race, um, their gender, their parental occupation, uh, the education of their parents, their place of birth. And when you try to account for how much of overall inequality those predetermined circumstances account for, um, you have a measure of inequality of opportunity. Uh, And again, there you see uh, Latin America to a very large extent up here, Brazil, Guatemala, Paraguay, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, a little bit less. Um, And, uh, you know, together with some African countries like like South Africa and and Rwanda. So a picture of inequality that's not only high, but very persistent and very unfair in the sense that it also uh, is this kind of inequality of of opportunity. So that, you know... (laughs) One could speak you know, for a whole course about inequality in, in, in Latin America, but sometimes that, that's the kind of background. And then along came the pandemic early last year. Uh, and I've done a little bit of work trying to look at the impacts on social well being from two aspects of the pandemic mortality and poverty. These are not the only social consequences of the pandemic. The pandemic's having massive effects on schooling uh, and on nutrition. Um, and on suffering through health that doesn't uh, lead to death. But we were trying to quantify a little bit impact of mortality and poverty around the world. So let me just show you three pictures um, of that. Um, So here, um, our measure of mortality is the number of life years lost to the pandemic. So if you die at age 60 and life expectancy in your country for 60 year olds is 75, you lose 15 years, okay? So life years lost to people. Here is about 150 countries. Um, These are log scales. So you have this massive increasing slope here, um, which actually shows that poorer countries lost fewer years than richer countries. That's primarily because of the population demographics. COVID is highly age-specific, and these countries have many older people. But look at Latin America here. Latin America... Um, you know, is alongside Belgium, the U.S. and, and other uh, uh, European countries, the U.K. Um, the region that 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 suffered the most. That's Peru, Mexico, uh, South Africa is there too. Brazil is there. Um, you know, a lot of Latin America is over here with very high mortality. I mean, just just to emphasize, what this scale is telling you is that the number of life years lost in Latin America is about a thousand per 100,000 people. So one in one year per 100 people. Whereas in some place like Thailand and China, that's about 1,000 to 500 times less. Okay? So massive mortality shock, shock to the region. Also a massive shock in terms of poverty. Because we want to compare life years, you know, we want to compare mortality and poverty without, using, without putting a dollar value on people's lives, we're using years. So here are poverty years, additional years spent in poverty. Um, under some assumptions that I can discuss later if you like. And again, Latin America is above the line. This flat relationship here is because we're using different poverty lines for low income countries, lower middle income, upper middle income, and high income countries. And I can dwell on the details and questions if there are any. But the point is, um, by the upper middle income line, which is still a fairly low poverty line, Latin America once again tends to be, not all of it is here, you've got uh, Costa Rica here, and So on, but a lot of Latin America is up here with more poverty. So, if you combine the two, you add the mortality cost and the poverty cost, uh, and you try to construct some measure of welfare costs of the pandemic arising from these two sources. And there are lots of assumptions here, lots of caveats that we can discuss later. Um, but, you know, the aggregate welfare losses, which, again, tend on the whole to be increasing with income per capita, surprisingly to me, but that's what they, they tend to be under these assumptions. Latin America is a region that, alongside with parts of Europe, has suffered the most uh, from this pandemic, uh, both from mortality and from poverty. And in my concluding slide, let me just give you a few parting thoughts why, you know, why is that the case? Why has LAC suffered massive welfare losses from the pandemic? There is a number of factors. One is the age structure of the population. Amongst you know, developing countries, we don't have as old a population as Europe, but we do have an older population, certainly uh, than Africa and much of South Asia. Highly urbanized region, and the virus is, uh, thrives in, in high density areas. A highly urbanized region, though, with poor water, sanitation and health infrastructures. Um, The virus had a party in favelas and slums around the region, right? A large proportion of informal workers, workers who have a precarious insertion in the labor market and can't work from home in Zoom meetings like we can um, and have to go out to work, Uh, okay? One thing I wanted to note, and it would be interesting to hear my fellow panelists on this, this is apparently largely independent of the broad seriousness which the pandemic took. I mean, Brazil and Peru took very dramatic different uh, attitudes to lockdowns early on, and yet both had disastrous results. These costs of mortality and poverty um, are some, but we will also experience huge future costs from uh, the pause in education and the nutritional consequences of greater poverty in the region today. So there's going to be a persistence of this shock going through to future generations that I think we're only beginning to understand. I've been setting the seam internationally, but um, all of these losses that I've talked about here have been highly unequally distributed within countries by income, by race and ethnicity, by place of residence, by labor market insertion, among others. Uh, And I know that some of my fellow panelists have done work on this and will speak to that. But there are inequalities across countries and within countries in in the way the pandemic um, is interacting.
1: Francisco, Francisco, forgive me for interrupting you, but uh, we're we're running a little over time. Ah,
2: Okay. Well, my last point is just to say um, there was one silver lining from uh, from this, which was the ability of the region to mobilize a large and effective uh, effective emergency cash transfers, cash transfer programs. Um, And I think uh, Laura, for example, might talk a little bit about that. So uh, let me end here because of time. Thank you very much.
1: Laura, over to you, please.
3: All right. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for the invitation to this great panel. I'm sharing my screen. I hope it works. Can you see it on full screen? Yes? Okay. All right. So I'll try to be very brief. Um, So starting uh, from what Francisco has presented, uh, I'll focus here on the presentation on the specific um, relationship between inequality and the pandemic in Brazil, and, and that relationship actually has two sides of the story. As, as Francisco has pointed out, uh, inequality has played a role in aggravating the pandemic, but it also has been aggravated by it, and, and of course that leaves us, uh, and I, I'm sure that that works for other countries in Latin America, in a situation that is more vulnerable to a future shock um, where inequality will again play um, act as a big cost in terms of um, both an economic and a social cost. Um, so starting with the first part of the story, namely how inequality has aggravated the pandemic, um, So uh, we have worked on an index that actually measures uh, social risk factors to infection, to being infected by COVID-19, and that measure adds up. I'll I'll not go over the details here. The paper is available. It's called uh, "Multidimensional Inequality and COVID-19 in Brazil." Uh, It's co-authored with uh, two um, other colleagues, and basically, what we've seen is that through uh, by adding up. Uh, risks such as having access to clean water, sewage system, um, whether the individual works at an essential service that was considered essential by the government and therefore has not been shut down uh, in the first stage of the pandemic, uh, by adding up uh, several dimensions of... um, uh, social vulnerability that made someone more prone to be infected by the virus. We created an index and that index, uh, we, we have an average for that index for different Brazilian states and we've seen how uh, that average social risk factor uh, really correlates per, per state, really correlates with the number of cases by population in the different Brazilian states and, and so It it seems to be the case that um, the more uh, you have um, inequality in terms of access to um, not only income, but also in terms of access to um, clean water and other infrastructure, to to housing with uh, another enormous density in terms of number of people sharing the same bedroom, etc., everything that entered in that index, the more the state has developed um, uh, risk of infection and the number of cases and that uh, respond to that. Um, there is also a change over time that we notice during the pandemic. As the virus has spread, the correlation between that social vulnerability index and the number of cases and that has increased up to a certain point, after which it has decreased. That, we, we have a few hypotheses for that, but I, I do not have time to enter those Right now. Um, That said, um, um, when we go to the other side, namely how um, the pandemic has affected inequality, uh, we do notice that um, when it comes to labor income, the the crisis has really disproportionately hit uh, those at the bottom, as it did in other countries, of course, because of its disproportionate impact in the services sector, which is intensive in low skilled labor. Um, The the, the bottom of the distribution, those that are uh, less skilled, have been affected the most by an income loss when we stick to labor income. But in Brazil, we have this particular paradoxical even scenario Uh, in which the approval by Congress of a very large cash relief emergency program that added up to 4.1% of GDP last year, so it's a very large program, the largest social transfer program in Brazilian history, Um, uh, we have managed in 2020 to really fully neutralize the effect of the pandemic on inequality. Actually, we observed and here is what we can see here in this chart that um, for the bottom half of the population for those uh who are um really below the 50% here of uh, the 50 50%, the 50th percentile here uh we we had um the the auxilio emergencial which is this program the cash relief program was able to fully compensate the loss of income uh that has been experienced between uh the the pre-pandemic period and and May, which is when this this survey here, the PNAD COVID survey has been uh, collected. So um, for half of the population, this program was able to really um, um, fully neutralize the the, the income, the labor income loss. And so inequality measure as measured by the Gini index or other indexes has fallen in 2020, once you take into account this social benefits uh, that was temporary social benefits, even though it has increased if we only take into account labor market um, uh, income impacts. And so um, the, the question is, okay, um, so we had this, basically we, we ended the year and here we have the distribution of the auxilio emergencial, the cash relief program, how it has been distributed across Uh, different income brackets Um, and so really it wasn't a very focused it wasn't a very uh, targeted benefit it it benefited more than 70 million people um, and it really included informal workers who gained less than a certain threshold it wasn't aimed at and targeted at the very poor but if you look at the distribution of resources uh, of this cash relief program you see that uh it It really benefited mostly the those at the bottom than those at the top um, uh, and 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 that and that's why we have observed a a reduction in inequality uh in two thousand and twenty when when taking uh the benefit into account uh the impact of that when you look at the the macro economy is was huge in fact uh we estimate given pre um other studies on fiscal multipliers of social benefits. Uh, if we apply the, these multipliers uh, at a very parsimonious actual estimation, uh, we will see that the falling GDP in Brazil, which was just released yesterday, and, and we we have suffered a 4.1 percent uh, reduction in GDP in 2020. Uh, those 4.1 percent, which of course, it is big, but not as big as in other countries in the region, for instance, Mexico and Argentina have a projection of a, of a of a fall of more than nine percent of GDP in two thousand and twenty um, and other countries around the world um, have have much larger numbers for this recession brazil's uh, reduction of four point one percent uh, is obviously not caused by a good management of the health crisis, which was a disaster, and it wasn't, it's not called by good structural conditions, which are also contributing to making this crisis much worse in Brazil. It, it is uh, really mostly driven by uh, the, the stabilizing effect, the stabilizing effect that the, the Auxilio Emergencial, this big cash relief program had, in terms of attenuating the in income, and and we estimate that GDP could have fallen, fallen really the double, more than eight percent, if Auxilio emergencial, if this cash relief program hadn't been uh, implemented. So uh, uh, I'm now, I'm afraid we have to move uh, on. To, to an end, yes. Um, uh, the problem is this program is 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 now uh, over for 2021. We are currently discussing. New possibilities of uh, extending the, the the emergency program uh, for a couple of months. The government uh, and Congress are now uh, in a certain difficult uh, situation in terms of finding uh, the space for this in the budget, um, and there may be an extension for a couple of months. But they, what 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 we're talking about here in terms of the cost of the program won't be enough to avoid an increase in inequality and poverty, and it won't be enough to foster a faster economic recovery. Uh, What what is left for discussion is really, and we can talk more on the Q&A, is is not only how to extend this program now, but also how to to take that experience of, of a very big impact on inequality of a large income social transfer program as a way to think of a permanent expansion in our social protection system and current program, Bolsa Familia and other other programs that we have. Um, We have estimated the impact on inequality of different proposals that could fund such an expansion of social protection uh, social protection, I invite those who want to look at, at it into more detail to to enter our, our website from our research center wish uh, it's here um, in the bottom uh, basically uh, the proposals that actually take out money from taxing the top 1% or the top 10% of the distribution to expand social protection on the other side have a much larger impact on reducing the Gini Index than, than programs who, who actually aim at uh, substituting current social benefits for, um, for another program that could expand um, on current post families. So that's what I have, and, and we, can, we can discuss more in five minutes. It's a, it's a bit hard. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Of course, great. Sorry to rush you, Laura. Just, just uh, we're getting sure. quite a lot of questions in and want to give good opportunity. Amir, over to you, please.
4: Hello, everybody. Can you see my presentation? Fantastic. I'm very, very pleased to, to be able to present the preliminary findings, the first project of the Cunningham House uh, Research Forum, but also glad to be able to, to hear uh, fantastic insights from, from the three other speakers. So uh, yeah, a little disclaimer first is that I'm obsessed with metaphors and I'm also obsessed with food. So don't be surprised by the amount of food related metaphors I can cram in, in five minutes. So I have three main messages. The first one of drawing on the, on the title and the theme of this panel is rather than only thinking about how to distribute the income pie, it's also urgent to think about how to break the inequality mold in uh, Latin America. In particular, it's important to pay attention to the role of productive diversification as a way to sustainably reduce uh, long-term pre-distribution inequality. Uh, It's particularly relevant in Latin America, where high inequality rates don't only reflect the ability or lack thereof uh, of states to collect and redistribute taxes, but also the low absorption of labor in value-added activities which hinders pre-distribution uh, inequality. And export diversification is correlated with income inequality, you know, through various channels, one of which, especially in commodity-dependent countries, uh, basically virtually all of South America is, is dependent on commodities, uh, not so much Central America. But I mean, this basically the ability of creating demand for labor, thereby generating employment opportunities. But export diversification is also related, correlated with uh, tax stabilization of tax revenues, which then can be used to fund uh, social spending programs and, and social welfare. And related to that, second point is that additional cash transfers and social spending are necessary to reduce uh, long-term inequality as you know. Chico and Laura have done work on that, but they may remain insufficient to tackle long-term inequality reduction if they're not accompanied by policies and particularly industrial policies to promote export diversification to reduce commodity dependence. So in context where inequality is caused by a scarcity of jobs that pay above subsistence level, as in several Latin American countries, uh, programs that are exclusively designed to distribute existing resources and to make, even to make job seekers more capable uh, might fail in the long term if there are no available jobs, right? Uh, and little capacity to absorb labor. So, in a way, it's a bit like learning uh, how to fish, uh, in a fishless lake. Uh, so that's why inequality reduction measures need to be accompanied by uh, industrial policies. Thirdly, the, uh, and to illustrate this point, the drop in commodity prices in 2014 uh, had an immediate effect. Uh, in terms of the reduction of public investment in conditional cash transfer programs and since 2014 is also when you know we start to see the the ending of great progress in inequality reduction in the region in most countries inequality starts to you know rates start to stagnate and sometimes even increase again and the third point is that inequality reduction especially through structural transformation should also be in the interest uh, of the elite in order to avoid further uh, social unrest. So there's a large amount of research on the costs of inequality, including a recent book by uh, Diego Sanchez and Cochea, which show that you know high kind of inequality rates are correlate, correlated with uh, political instability, which is also correlated with decreasing uh, growth rates. So you can use the, the metaphor of the wine pyramid, which is often used to describe uh, trickle down or, or lack thereof and kind of uh, income distribution but the idea here is that if the glass on top becomes too heavy and wealth doesn't trickle down the glasses at the bottom might break which will cause the glass on top to also spill and this metaphor can be used to describe what has happened in Latin America in 2019 uh, where we have witnessed the waves, you know, waves of, of, of protests that were partly motivated by the perception of, of increasing inequality But when it comes to the perception of inequality, it's best to hear from from the expert in the room, which is uh, Alice, so I'll I'll end my presentation there.
5: Amir,
1: thank you so much. Alice, over over to you. Alice, you're you're on mute, I'm afraid.
5: Thank you, thank you, Amir, uh, for this very smooth uh, lay on. Are you seeing my screen, everybody? Um, and uh, thank you for Laura, to Laura and uh, Francisco, for these excellent uh, uh, insights and and um, well setting up the scene. My presentation will thus look a little bit at, as Amir says, what uh, the perception of inequality is that is not necessarily, um, not necessarily in line with what inequality. It actually looks like and that's one of the one of the key things that I look at in my research how uh, whether we actually know what inequality is like um, whether it, ch- it differs from how we measure it um, and that is important because depending on um, if we think it's it's high or low or decreasing or increasing we might feel more uh, urged to change it or to do something about it and, and that relates a lot to uh, to the wine metaphor that uh, Amir set up. Um, as you just said, it should be in the interest of elites to change uh, inequality. It is. I can see that in my, in my qualitative research with elites, uh, that there is a, a worry about inequality. Uh, however, there is an interesting paradox uh, when we think about how inequality is perceived, uh, how we would like inequality to be, and uh, what we actually are able to do or willing to do about it. So I want to present you uh, some data. From a recent survey that we did that was uh, pre-COVID and the one we're doing now to check whether it's still the same is still underway because of the delay so I cannot give you uh, the new numbers but uh, what we found last year in Mexico is that uh, there's a lot of data on this graph just focus on the specific uh, uh, um, bars. Each set of bars describes a scenario of inequality. To the left is the highest inequality Gini coefficient of 0.75 and to the right is absolute equality, a gini coefficient of zero. And then we ask people uh, what they think inequality is like in the country. And um, we find that half of people actually perceive, or more than half perceive inequality to be very high. Uh, and actually some uh, think that it's higher than it actually is um, uh, as we measured in the country, which is around, around 0.53 or something like that. Um, now, when we ask people how they would like inequality to be, we can see that now we have half of the population uh, on the other extreme. They wanted it to be either perfectly, the country to be perfectly equal or uh, have a genie of around 0.2, which is uh, not existing currently in the world. Um, uh, on average, people would desire a genie in Mexico of 0.3, which is about Canadian level. So it's very far removed from the, uh, from the actual level. So we can see that there's an idea and an understanding that inequality is high. This is on average, of course, uh, Population average, um, but there's also at the same time a desire for it to be a lot lower. Yeah, and this is also something, as I say, that I can find in qualitative uh, data, even among uh, elites. And there's a little side note: um, the wealthiest people have augmented their income a lot. I mean, in the U.S., I think 600, 700 multimillionaires have increased almost 40% their income in the last uh, year, which is. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is is not exactly Latin America, but uh, partially, um, so it can give an indication of how things work in the region as well. Um, Okay, that's the side note. Um, Social mobility is perceived as something completely different. And here's where the perceptions and the reality differs a lot. And uh, I would like you to focus just on the second to the right columns and the second to the left columns. That's the Q1 to Q5, which... implies that uh, somebody born in the lowest quartile of income uh, can reach up uh, a quintile, sorry, can reach uh, the highest quintile of income, right? So if I'm born in poverty in my lifetime, I will reach uh, a fairly wealthy position or uh, the reverse. If I'm born uh, in wealth, uh, I would in my lifetime descend uh, into a poverty situation. Uh, We ask people how likely they perceive the situation to be to occur. And uh, people actually think it's incredibly likely. They perceive that there is a uh, 36% of people that are born in poverty that reach wealth in their life, and there is a uh, 31% of people that are born uh, wealthy that will uh, end up in poverty. And this is incredibly far removed from reality, where in Mexico it's less than three percent that uh, move from poverty to not even really wealth. I mean, it's just the highest quintile, right? And uh, there is uh, less than two percent, so two in uh, hundred people that actually move down from the highest quintile. the lowest control so uh, perceptions are incredibly far removed again desire for social mobility is a lot higher so now the question is what do we want to do uh, well what are we willing to do uh, for this to change and here we find something incredibly interesting which is that people are willing to give quite little and uh, the second interesting thing is that uh, poor people are willing to give much more than wealthy people and uh, for that we ranked uh, people Uh, surveyed uh, according to an index of wealth, because we uh, want to use their wealth uh, rather than their income. Uh, And we find that those that are in the lower parts are willing to give about 15% of their uh, income uh, in order for there to be no poverty and no inequality. That's the question. So how much of your income would you give or of an extra income that you got, would you be willing to sacrifice for there to be no poverty and no inequality? And then we find that uh, wealthy people are only half would would be willing to only give half as much uh, as poor people, right? Um I won't get too much into the details because of time uh, of what we propose or what people rather uh, propose uh, as a solution in taxes. Just as a kind of last uh, words on this, uh, we find the same. Uh, just focus on the on the right panel, the 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 B panel uh, of uh, what people would like uh, taxes to look like, uh, and we find that. Uh, When we ask them how much poor people should pay, they think there should be a a positive tax rate of about 14% for poor people. Uh, When we ask about median income, people say it should be about 22% uh, of income, which is quite low and which uh, ironically is what people actually pay today. Um, But when it's about wealth or about high income uh, or wealthy people, um, again, poor people think that wealthy people should pay a lot more, uh, about uh, almost 50% uh, in income, that's the desire. And uh, wealthier people, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but in this case, uh, decide or, or, or prefer to pay a lot less uh, in taxes and actually about what they are supposed to pay currently and uh, don't even uh, pay that amount, right? Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you with this uh, desire for redistribution, but obviously there is a big call behind to increase taxes, uh, especially at the top, um, but uh, in, in general, consider taxes on, on, on wealth and uh, other direct taxes. Uh, thank you.
1: Alisa, thank you so much. In fact, thank you all for your for your presentations. I, I'm now going to open the floor to, to questions from the audience. Um, given the number that have been coming in, I doubt we're going to get to everybody. So my apologies uh, in advance for that. But uh, um, I'm not saying you shouldn't continue typing questions in, So, but make, make them short. We'll try and get through. As many as possible. Um, I was going to use chairman, uh, moderator's privilege and actually ask the first question, but I'm actually going to leave the question I have to the, to the end. Um, and I'm going to start off with, with one from our audience. This is from Miles Bizan from Argentina. Um, it was just wondering if we, someone can talk a little bit about the role of farming. In inequality in Latin America, given how important the industry is in the region, and I'm wondering if perhaps Amir might be able to respond to that, or, or Francisco. I just want one panelist to to respond to each question for, in the interest of time. Do I have a volunteer? <laughs> Amir, you are you unmuted first. Please go. ahead. I, think
4: I can start to say something. Quick and uh, shiko can complement what I'll say. Um, Yeah, um, in terms of farming, so, I mean, it is part of the, I mean, there's different types of commodity, right? Uh, self commodities. The difference with extractives is that farming can be more labor-intensive. So, as part of a kind of diversification diversification strategy, farming could be also a way to absorb uh, more labor, uh, at least at the initial stage. Uh, But the issue with farming, I'll just add something there, is, is climate change, opening something else, is that I mean, this, the I mean, agricultural com- production is particularly vulnerable to temperature uh, and precipitation fluctuations, which means that on the long term, uh, I mean, that cannot be kind of you know uh, 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 you can't put all your eggs in that basket as a way to increase labor. We will just increase the uh, possible vulnerabilities of of these of these economies uh, to climate change. Chico, do you want to add something?
2: Well, I was just going to say that Amir should take it. So.
1: <laughs> well, that, that, that's fine, because, uh, Chico, I, I've got an, another question for you, um, which is, um, this is from Thiago Leão, who's at uh, Minis- uh, the Federal University of Minas Gerais, uh, who'd like to know how integration between Latin American countries could help in reducing inequality. And I guess I'd just add to that, you know, has there been much cooperation so far on this?
2: Um, Well, the second part of the question, I think there hasn't. I mean, we've been talking about integration in Latin America for a long time. Uh, You know, Mercosur did something. There were pacts in the Andean community and so on. But these have all been, in my estimation, relatively timid attempts um, at at integration. Um, You know, relative, for example, to what's been done uh, in Europe, of course, but also in East Asia. how would it, how would it uh, affect inequality? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that um, there would be many potential benefits uh, to some of the poorest people in the region if, for example, there was more movement of people. Um, we do see migration, not only from Venezuela, which is the biggest source of uh, migrants, uh, I think, in the world now, it's overtaken Syria. Um, but we do see migration from poorer countries to richer countries within the region, from Bolivia to Chile and Argentina, and so on and so forth. Um, I think if there were more of that, there would probably be, you know, be benefits to some of those people. And I think trade integration would probably be beneficial to average incomes. I'm not prepared to say, I don't think I've done any, I haven't done any research and I don't know any research on, on what it would do to the distribution. It would probably be a good thing just by raising average incomes. I think if we traded more within the region, um, as long as that didn't distort trade with the rest of the world, it would probably be a good thing. I'll leave it there.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, Alisa, I, w- I wonder if I could direct the, this this one to you. I mean, you touched on it in, in your remarks just now, um, but if you know the, the operational laws, if you like, of a society in Latin America have got, um, are, are wedded to, if you like, the, the inequality in the, in the sense of the benefits that they, they get from it, what does it actually take uh, to get them more willing um, to to open up uh, and to you know, go with redistribution? This is a question that Vijay Strahan is, is raising.
5: Um, incredibly important question and incredibly difficult to answer, I think. Um, in terms of what the, uh, Francisco was saying in the beginning, the responses have been very different by the governments in the region. Uh, in Mexico, the response has been, uh, I wouldn't say timid, I would say, terrible and there has been no uh redistribution program or any program specifically attending to this crisis um i'm not sure whether that is because there has been lobbying against or whether there's just been uh, an incredible uh naivety to what the crisis would bring or uh, whatever the reasons are uh, but i think it's incredibly difficult to convince um especially the as you say upper echelons to to participate in this redistribution and uh, wealth tax uh, well mexico is the only country in the OECD except now costa rica that doesn't have any wealth tax whatsoever um and that would uh, for example be an important start um, i'm not sure how to convince them I'm, tr- I'm trying to work on that i think the moment is maybe not so bad right now uh, because there uh, is an attention to inequality as a problem in general uh, so there's a lot of talk about inequality. And there's actually a genuine preoccupation with the problem, not only because of uh, what Amir said, that there is a risk for social crisis, but um, it's it's actually felt by people. And uh, there's a security threat, and especially in, in Central America and in Mexico, um, there is a, a violence threat. So, I mean, region is really violent, and um, which is also noted by very uh, wealthy people. Uh, this crisis has also increased the gender wage gap in Mexico. Uh, so there is another a good argument. I think good arguments are always good to try to convince people. I don't think it's enough. It is um, a question of power in the end and that is very unequally distributed uh, in, in this context here. So um, if if you have the answer to it, I'd really love to hear it. And uh, if I get it anytime soon, I'll, I'll pass it on.
1: Lisa, thank you. Um, a question here from Lucia de Oliveira, uh, which was actually directed at um, Francisco, but I'm actually gonna ask Laura to start off on this one. Do you think that populist political experiences, and obviously you're thinking particularly of Brazil, deepen the the process of growth of inequality? Does it aggravate it, or or, or does it help in any way? Lara, could I start with you?
3: Okay, well, that's also a difficult question because the definition of populism itself uh, is 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 so hard sometimes. But I I think. Uh, starting with what happened during the pandemic, right? We have a far-right uh, president whose political, whose economic policy was uh, at the beginning uh, very much uh, market fundamentalist and had no intention or at least had not revealed any intention to, to promote any kind of redistribution in his electoral platform. And when the pandemic uh, hit, we had big pressure from civil society um, in Congress actually playing out in a way that um, somehow uh, made it possible for this paradoxical situation I was telling you about of having this this very large redistributive policy, uh, of course, temporary during uh, a government that had no interest in doing it. And that uh, has changed things because, of course, the economic team at the beginning, uh, the Ministry of the Economy had uh, a plan to to do some to do a very much much tinier uh, cash transfer program, uh, which would cost around twenty times less of the one that was actually approved in the end. Uh, but then, once the the program happened and people started to experience, uh, um, its, its uh, consequences and uh, income gains, even at the very bottom of the distribution, the government started to gain popularity in, in several political surveys. And this has created a conflict uh, in, 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 a, in a project that's in an authoritarian project that had no populism in terms of the economic policy up to that point, but that started to, to, to see with good eyes the political capital that could be obtained from such a thing, uh, such a large cash transfer. And that's that's where we are now. We don't know. There is still uh, much, very much a conflict within the government between the Ministry of the Economy, who wants to go back to austerity, uh, and on the other side, uh, those who want to have more political support and who want to extend uh, the program, who want to permanently, permanently expand program a Familia and, and get the, the, the political um, rewards from it. So uh, it's, I think each, really each situation is different. And I, I, I cannot compare the current context, which is quite complex to, to other experiences of populism in Latin America, especially not those on the left who clearly had a plan in terms of redistribution, uh, even though they did not attack let's say, the, the, the concentration at the very top either. Right?
1: Laura, thank you. I'm, I'm Just in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to move on to, to another um, question, which is that of, of, of basic income or minimum income levels. Does, does that have a role to play here? And is, is that viable anyway? Amir, would you like to take that one? You're on mute. Um,
4: I'm not not quite knowledgeable on the whole discussion on basic income. I know that there is a lot that's been said on that. Maybe Laura and Chico, I think, have, have done some work on it, so maybe they'll okay. provide a better answer. Fair
1: enough. I would like
2: to volunteer Laura for
3: this one. <laughs> this, is, this is something Thank like past the parcel, guys. Okay, you. last, that last a gift. That was a gift. Thank you, Amir and Chico. Yeah, so, um, there has been a, a growing debate on Really, having more universal uh, income transfer policies in Brazil. Uh, we do, I mean, of course, our we have our, uh, the Bolsa Familia, the Programa Bolsa Familia is the largest conditioned cash transfer program in the world, which made us have a lot in terms of empirical evidence and experience and technology and, and really technology to develop social policies. But um, it's still a very, very small program. And Auxilio Emergencial, the cash relief program was mentioned, gave us a a bit more scale, a bit more of scale and and, and, an idea of the impact on inequality you can have from such a large program. And of course, it could be seen as a a step towards, say, a gradual Universalization of uh, a minimum income level in Brazil, even if we don't think of it as possibly to, to, to fund just a universal basic income right right away, uh, we do have simulations on different types of uh, tax and transfer schemes that could uh, basically made it make it viable to have, say, a program uh, for that that reaches thirty the thirty percent poorest. In, in, the, in the population. And we can fund that very easily through a small increase in taxation at the very top in a region that we know really undertax under uh, the very top. And, and the impact on inequality of this type of tax and transfer schemes can, be, can go up to a reduction in, of 8.9% in the Gini index according to our simulations based on, on surveys. So I, I think it's possible, the debate is there, uh, but the political, the political conditions are not necessarily there um, to do that, uh, I think, at least not in Brazil.
1: Okay, now this, is, this really is a question for, for Amir. Um, when it comes to export diversification, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, that earlier, but realistically, um, you know, what does that agenda look like and, and does it really have the capability to, to get Latin America out of its dependence on commodities and get it to uh, a larger pie at the very least, Whether you're getting, you know, however it's redistributed? How realistic mm. is that?
4: So the thing with export diversification is that, well, it can either increase or even, it can decrease or even increase inequality depending on how uh, strategically, how, depending on how it's designed. Uh, for example, if it's done poorly i mean if you diversify towards uh high value added sector that require complex skills without actually investing in the skills required only the people who already have those skills right i mean there'll be more demand for them and their wage will increase and which will increase wage inequalities but the idea is that it takes really a whole vision uh, it takes also bold steps uh and also the kind of being creative in terms of what the country could do that does not already uh, do i mean brazil had had you know, has had successful uh experimentations uh in in manufacturing um but for the other regions one thing that i will address i will mention is the need for regional integration uh, many of them have uh, a domestic market that is too small to be able to think big right to be able to at least reach economies of scale to be able to export and become internationally competitive uh, so there is definitely uh, scope for uh, not just industri- nat- industrial strategies at the national level, but actually at the at the, at the regional level to think about how to uh, foster synergies and complementarities in terms of you know what can be done and and regional supply chains as well.
1: Okay, I'm, I'm going to put deploy one more question. I think before I, I'm going to have to hand back to Gareth, um, but uh, and this is for for Alice, and it relates specifically to 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 Mexico. How does the current political climate and, and the government's agenda in Mexico influence the attitudes and perceptions that, that you describe? Does it have a role or are these attitudes somehow hardwired? That's a question from Manolo Loreno.
5: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, and I will only be able to give you a proper answer once we tr- uh, finish our current survey, of course, um, because the first one started just at the very beginning of uh, of the than new government, Uh, I think in general, it's not something that is necessarily hardwired. And I think there is a change uh, that can be, uh, let's say anecdotally for now, until we have the data uh, be observed um, in terms of the importance that is attached to inequality. Now, the the kind of paradoxical situation is that the current government is a nominally more left-leaning government, and yet it is economically, uh, in in terms of its economic policy, not at all uh, traditionally uh, left-leaning or what you would associate with this so there is a discourse on changing uh, distribution and there is a very uh, let's say polarizing politically polarizing discourse but there is not a lot of economic policy that actually uh, reflects that so uh, it's not so clear yet whether the change uh, the perceptional change uh, goes beyond this pure discursive uh, inequality is a problem and we should do something about it but yet we don't want to pay for it kind of thing right so it's and now we're a little bit in the situation that we want to have our cake and eat it, or rather we don't want to have it and not eat it. Um, but also uh, if we are actually willing to, for example, the government has uh, completely excluded the possibility of having tax reforms or uh, of uh, changing. Uh, incre- well, it has changed some um, scholarship programs, but uh, in return it has taken away the uh, conditional cash transfer program. So there's a little bit of an unclear situation whether they actually really mean this uh, equalizing stuff they talk about so we'll, we'll have to see but uh, in terms of the attitude I do think that they're uh, moldable and they're they're adjusted uh, in terms of the global paradigm of talking about inequality as a problem now I mean when we when I started asking these things uh, almost 10 years ago the problem was not seen as such a big thing as it is now so there is definitely like a contextual uh, uh, question about it as well
1: well just, just to, to wrap up thank you to, to our audience for all your questions I was quite sure that we weren't going to get to all of them. There's some fantastic questions which we could have got to, which are are unanswered sadly, Um, but hopefully our panel will take some of them away with them and and use them as part of their research going forward. So thank you very much once again for all all your sterling answers. And I'm going to hand back to Gareth
0: at this point. Uh, Thanks, Christina, Uh, beautifully moderated. And uh, thank you to the panelists um, for your interventions and and talks. it does strike me, thinking about this as a sort of COVID, as a kind of global event, that we're still able to pull out the sort of variances and the and the and the particular um, sort of qualities which then sort of still percolate and, and are identified from Latin America. And I think that's sort of uh, beautifully um, shown in in all of the the presentations. And thinking of one of the images that she put up. That Latin America, in many ways, is more comparable to the United States or South Africa. I think also poses certain questions to us in uh, in that regard to sort of stretch a regional bubble uh, of uh, of analysis in particular ways. I'm also struck, and it, it, I hope chimes with all four of the, the presentations and some of the questions too, that that the, the COVID emergency has 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 sat on top of or has sort of integrated with for most people on the ground, an everyday emergency um, that was palpable in, in other ways. And in some of our research in Sao Paulo, um, in some of our uh, questions to, to very low-income households in the south of the city, um, questions about the kind of COVID uh, effects in certain respects actually elicit answers about livelihood emergencies and, and livelihood crises at their background. And, and it's it, we need to sort of uh, entangle both of those uh, as, uh, as related points, in which case the the, the, uh, the Auxilio Emergencia is, is really critical because it ties those two uh, things uh, together. So I'm really struck by how um, in many ways that there are sort of these stresses that Covid has highlighted, accentuated uh, fiscal stress, which is going to have impacts on the, the durability and or the temporariness of some of these cash transfer uh, or emergency solutions. Export stress, depending largely perhaps what will happen to the China economy uh, going forward um, and will limit or enable the diversification uh, to some extent of, of exports and trade. I know I think and I'm kind of inventing the term here, but there is a sort of representational or cognitive uh, stress at work here as well about how people perceive their mobilities and the interface there with sort of populism and particular Uh, political triggers and consequences and and the latitude um, for acceptance of redistribution uh, or particular uh, sort of measures. So uh, that's enough from me, but I'd just like to underscore and thank all the panellists once more uh, and to Christina, and hopefully we'll get this up as a podcast in uh, the coming hours or days. And uh, thank you, everyone, to the audience uh, for your uh, uh, Zoom patience. uh, And uh, thank you.